0: Good morning. good morning. Troy is my best bald friend that I have. So, <laughs> actually, Janet and I are very grateful for our friendship with uh, the Murphys, and it's developing. It's just good to have people you can do life with and be honest about whatever's true. Uh, before we get to the message this morning, I'd like to spend just a few minutes giving you a thumbnail sketch of my story so you know who's talking to you. I grew up in Little Chute, Wisconsin, uh, had four siblings and two parents, a mom and a dad. And out of the seven people in our family, three were handicapped. My older sister, there were birth complications and eventually she was diagnosed as being mentally retarded. And then my brother, who was four years younger than I, uh, mom had even more severe complications at birth and he was quadriplegic. He never walked, he never talked, everything had to be done for him. He lived to be 20 years old. And then on top of that, my father was an epileptic and would occasionally have grand ball seizures in public. And so as I got older, I had all these questions. Uh, Questions like, God, how come most families don't have any handicapped people in it? We got three. Like, that's not fair. And it had a lot to do with uh, the reproach of things that people said to me or how they treated me because of them and the whole shame of being associated and am I like them and So by the time I got to about 7th or 8th grade, I started drinking, started doing drugs. Uh, All four years of high school was just escape. I was just running from the pain in my life. I didn't want to deal with it. I just wanted to check out. And so probably my whole uh, freshman, sophomore, junior year, I was stoned probably every day. Um, When I became a senior in high school, I decided that was heading nowhere, so I switched from the drug crowd to the drinking crowd. And big improvement. Just going to get drunk instead of do all the rest of the stuff. And uh, after I graduated from high school, I went to a conservation camp in northern Wisconsin for the summer. And when I came back, it was the fall of 75, and I'm like, who am I and what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I was just, I had no clue. So I asked my mom to drive me up to the family cottage, my grandparents had a cottage, and just drop me off. I don't want to have a vehicle, my own vehicle, because... I know I'll find a bar or some party at night, so just drop me off so I can't. And I'll call you when I want to get picked up. I just want to think about my life. So when she dropped me off, she handed me a Bible and said, if you get a chance, read this. Well, I grew up in a family that went to church, but we never read the Bible, and actually we're told you couldn't. It had to be explained to you. And so I'm like, this is weird. But it was the illustrated Bible, the living Bible, and it had a picture on the cover. I'm like, and I had never read the Bible, so later that day, I cracked it open, and in the very beginning it had statements like where to look when. You're lonely, and then it had verses. Where to look when you're confused, and it had verses. Where to look when you're depressed, and it had verses. And I'm thinking, shoot, I'm all these. I'm lonely, depressed, confused. (laughs) And so I start turning to the references, and now I realize a lot of those references were in the book of Psalms, and they were very comforting. And I'm thinking, somebody else felt what I feel. And drenched his couch with tears and was confused and hurting and and so I I was very touched and but the one that caught my attention was where to look when you need change because i had been trying to change and trying but the more I tried it felt like the harder it was and the more I quit escaping the more I was facing all the things I was running from in my life and all the pain and um but I turn to this reference, where to look when you need change, and it was John chapter 3, and it was the whole account of Jesus with this discussion with Nicodemus, and he explained how you had to be born again, be born of the Spirit, and I'm thinking, I've never heard this term before in my life. I have no idea what it means to be born again. I didn't know any born-again Christians. So I'm like, well, what is this? So I kept reading it over and over again, but it really doesn't explain how. So that night, <clears throat> I turn on, I grabbed a Coke uh, the soda kind, and sat on the couch, and I turned on the television, sat on the couch. It, those were the days when you actually had to turn the TV on with the knob, and then it took a few minutes for it to warm up and come into view. So I'm sitting on the couch, and it, the, it finally comes on, and Billy Graham is on TV. And I'm, I don't know what my concept was, but it wasn't favorable, so I got up to turn off the set. And while I'm walking to turn off the set, he points... And says, and you watching by television, listen to what I have to say. Now, I'm still a paranoid druggie, okay? So I'm like, oh my gosh. This guy knows I'm here. There's cops outside. I have some stash. I'm real paranoid. And then he says, Matthew 24, Jesus is knocking on your door. Tonight I want to talk about what it means to be born again. And I thought, oh, I can't believe this. I'd never heard the term before in my life. I read it this afternoon, and this dude's going to talk about it. So I listened, and he very clearly explained the difference between religion and a relationship and what it meant to invite Jesus to come in and live inside of you, and I'd never heard that before. So when he got done, turned off the set, sat down on the floor, lit a candle, and prayed a prayer something like, hey, Jesus, if what the dude's talking about is for real, go for it, the door's open. And I invited Christ in my life, and he came in, and my life began to change. And I Spent four years in the Coast Guard and went to Bible school after the Coast Guard. Came back, met my wife, met Janet, got married. Started a street ministry, an outreach ministry in Appleton called Solid Rock Ministries. For a couple years, we just went on the streets and in the bars. We had a crisis line called Lifeline, 24 hours a day. And which is now Life Promotions, Life Fest. uh, That organization actually became that. My brother leads that. But after a couple years, we realized that we were reaching a lot of people, but they weren't getting plugged into a church. So we felt like God told tell us to start a church. So 32 years ago, we started Christ the Rock and still the senior pastor there. Tons of stories, lots of lessons through the years. Uh, we have three adult sons that are married. We have five grandkids and two on the way. So <clears throat> it's been quite the ride. Let me start the message by asking you a couple of questions. Questions like, Why are we here? And what's life all about anyway? What's the essence of life? What's my purpose? What am I living for? When I get up on a given day, what's my goal for that day? What do I want to see happen or what am I living for? What's the bullseye? What's the target that I'm shooting for? The goal that this is why I'm alive today? Is that clear? Recently, I talked to a woman who said she went to a Christian counselor and kind of poured out her heart, her story of a 25-year marriage. And in essence, the counselor said, "Um, my recommendation to you is to divorce that man because you're not happy and to find someone that'll make you happy. And the essence of his counsel was, your goal in life is to be happy. And I think if a lot of us were honest, we'd say, yeah, I think that's my goal, too. I just want to be happy. I want to be liked. I, I want to do something significant with my life. So how would you answer that question? What, what really are you living for? Is it just to be happy, to find fulfillment? Now, I understand that you're going through the book of John. Uh, that's awesome. We are going through the book of 1 John at our church. And uh, it's the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. He actually wrote 1 John like 50 to 55 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it's interesting to wonder what the essence of what John was writing about. In the Gospel and in the Epistles, what if you had to boil it all down and say the main message and one word that describes what John is trying to teach us, what is he trying to teach us? In fact, if you looked at, how many of you have uh, Bibles that have the words of Jesus in red? red letter edition, you'll notice in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, all five of those chapters, it's all red, and they're all things that he said and taught during the Last Supper. So that's a big chunk of John, which is the discourse of what Jesus was saying to his 12 in those last hours before he was going to leave the planet. So what was the main message Jesus taught at the Last Supper. One word. He boiled it all down. I would say it's love. In fact, when he writes 1 John, he, what had happened in a church that he's writing to is that a small group of people got influenced by the teaching of Gnosticism, which was about knowledge and understanding, and they got off track. And Uh, John is writing to them and saying, hey, listen, this little group that broke off and they're talking about secret knowledge and insight and it's all about information. He said, don't listen to them because those guys were trying to influence everybody else to join them. And he's saying, don't do that. Stick with what you know. He's saying it's not that complicated. So that's the name of our series that we're going through first, John. It's not complicated. And so we did our own little homemade video to kind of help people remember the whole concept of it's not complicated. So let me let us take a look together at the video. What would be more fun, a pet ant or a pet elephant? Elephant. elephant? elephant, elephant. Why an elephant? I like it because they could go to the store for you and buy a bananas because I love bananas. I bananas. The elephant could go to the store <laughs> for you and buy bananas. Yeah, and peanuts. And peanuts. And, oh, I'm allergic to peanuts. And peanut butter. Oh. And ants wouldn't do that for you. No. Well, there you have it. It's not complicated. It was unscripted. We asked the questions and just let the kids talk. In fact, uh, as that went on, uh, one little boy said, uh, "Yeah, and if you had an elephant as a pet, if it got lost, it'd be easier to find than if you lost an ant." <laughs> so, it, but that's the essence of what John is saying. Is It's not complicated. Get back to the basics. It's about a relationship with God and letting him love you and loving him back. And it's about learning how to grow and what it means to love each other. So stick to what you know. And that's the emphasis of what Jesus is teaching in those last moments with his disciples. In fact, in John 13, it starts off with him washing their feet. And he's serving them and he's saying, if I, your Lord and Master, washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. It's about loving and serving each other. And then in John 13, 34 and 35, it kind of crescendos, and he says, okay, guys, pay attention. A new commandment I'm giving to you, that you love one another even as or just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples because you love each other. That's what distinguishes you. That's what makes you different than anybody else is that you're loving the way you've been loved by me. And all the world, all men will know if they see this kind of love. And then Jesus in John 17, we know is the high priestly prayer when he is actually talking to his father and it's he lets us in on this intimate prayer between him and his father and it kind of, it's described best in verse 21 when he said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so the world may believe that you sent me. So Jesus is actually praying that his followers would be united in love the same way the Trinity is. The same way that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate to each other and love each other and are unified in oneness, he prayed disciples, followers, would be one the same way. And I often think of that and go, well, I don't see that happening. I see Christians arguing and fighting and avoiding each other and breaking up relationships and leaving churches and... I go, that's not happening. And then I think, but Jesus wouldn't have prayed it if it wasn't possible. So the very fact that Jesus prayed it shows us the longing of the heart of Jesus, that his people would learn how to love the way the Trinity does, Trinitarian love and unity. So I go, God, if you prayed that for us, then it's possible, so help me cooperate with your spirit so that becomes more of a reality in my life and in my church and my community. Now, it's interesting to note that the disciples chose to follow Christ when he called them, but they didn't choose who they would follow him with. And so they spend three, three and a half years following Jesus and listening to his teachings. Now he's in his last hours with them, and he says, Hey, guys, you know the way I've loved you? I want you to see these guys next to you. I want you to love them the same way I've loved you. They could have said, Hey, wait a minute. I don't. Don't I have something to say about who I'm going to follow you with? Kind of be selective in who I'm in community with. Matthew could have said, I don't really like Peter. He's a big mouth and he always says whatever he thinks. And I'd rather be friends with. And Jesus saying, no, I want you to learn how to live this out. Love each other the way I've loved you. How did Jesus love them? Unconditionally. It wasn't with an if love. I love you if you do what I say. It's not a because love. I love you because it's a no matter what love. And he said, that's how I want you to love each other, no matter what, because that's how I've loved you. Now I wonder how many times in local churches today, people that claim to be followers of Jesus aren't really connected relationally in community in a local church. They may attend services, but they're not really getting engaged relationally, or they're engaged and they get hurt, and then they leave and go somewhere else. Or they just break off and do the home thing. We're just going to meet in a home. Or we're just going to meet with a few other believers in a coffee shop and call that church. Instead of saying, yeah, we get wounded, we get hurt. But I'm committed to growing in what it means to flesh this thing out. This whole concept of community. This whole concept of loving each other and not running from it. You may have heard the story about a guy that was stranded on a desert island. He'd been there for 10 years had all these different things to try to get attention, to be rescued. Finally, he sees the ship going by, and he does a little smoke signal, and someone on board sees it, and they go in. And after 10 years, he's finally rescued. They bring him on board. And as they're pulling out of the harbor, um, someone says to us, hey, tell us your story. And then they looked, and he said, hey, by the way, what's that, what's that building or that hut there? And he said, well, that's where I lived for the last 10 years. And he said, well, what's that hut right next to it. And he said, well, that's the church that I attend. And he said, well, what's the one right next to that? And he said, that's the church I used to attend. <laughs> the only guy on the island, and he couldn't even stay at his first church. And isn't that so true that when conflicts arise or there's problems or, you know, we rub each other or hurt each other or offend each other or sin against each other, it's just a whole lot easier to run from that and not deal with it, not work it through? Instead of say, hey, what does it mean to work this through to a place of genuine resolve, and what does love look like in this situation? Most of the books in the New Testament are written to local churches, not individuals. And yet so often when we read Scripture, we interpret what is it saying to me instead of what is it saying to us, corporately or collectively, for example 1 Corinthians chapter 13 which is called the love chapter is not written to a couple on their wedding day it's written to a local church that gathered in a place called Corinth and Paul under the inspiration of the spirit is saying people that are followers of Christ that are in community in a local church this is how they're supposed to relate to each other and if you have if you speak with the tongue of men and angels and you have all knowledge and you know everything and you are intelligent and your doctrine is down and you know the scriptures and you know all mysteries but if you don't love you're nothing it doesn't count for anything and then in first corinthians 13 4 through 7 he said this is what love looks like love is patient it's kind it's not jealous it doesn't brag it's not arrogant it's not self-righteous and i know more than you it doesn't act unbecomingly it does not seek its own it's not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered. doesn't hold grudges, doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, and it bears all things, and it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things, love never fails. So Paul is writing this to a local church, saying, this is what I want you to live out in local church community. Love each other like this. Does it apply to marriage? Sure. Does it apply to friendships and how you relate to your kids and your siblings? Sure, it applies. But in context, it's saying this is how people in a local church are supposed to relate to each other. So we have to ask ourselves, how are we doing? How are you doing? How are we doing? How am I doing with living out what love looks like in the context of local church community that I'm learning how to love the way Jesus loves? Now, I I love this. You may have heard this quote before from C.S. Lewis, but he says it so well. He said... To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to be sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Instead, wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. A powerful statement. If our main goal is to be safe, then we're not going to be loving very well. If our main goal is not to be hurt or to avoid hurt or conflict, then we're constantly going to be violating what it means to love well because to love well opens you up to be hurt. So what's more important to you, loving the way Christ loved or to be safe and to not be hurt? Bruce Cockburn said, We are lovers in a dangerous time. Nothing worth having comes without some kind of fight. We have to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. Are you willing to fight for the cause of loving the way Christ loves, fighting for community, fighting for connection? Are you willing to do that? Or if there's a problem, do you just flee? Do you just run? Do you just avoid? Do you just withdraw? It's easier to do that. Now, if and when we love each other the same way that Jesus does and we start fleshing that out, a watching world is going to be awed because they long for it. When they see it genuinely happening among believers, they're attracted to that because they were made for the very same thing. And a watching world is waiting to see the church truly love the way Christ does. And it will convince them, not only that we are followers of Christ and belong to him, but it will convince them that Jesus really was sent from the Father. So God, help us to grow in what it means to love like that. Now, part of loving well includes not pretending, not hiding, not trying to impress, not trying to make you think better of me than I really am. Part of loving well says, I am going to allow people to know me. Too often, we try to project on others what we want them to think of us. I don't want you to see the real me because I'm afraid that if you really knew me, you wouldn't want me. If you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. So I have to be careful. You can't really know me. And yet the way Jesus loved us is fully known, fully loved, right? He fully knows us. He knows more about us than we know about ourselves. And yet he fully loves us. And then he said, I want you to love like that. Fully know each other and then fully love as you get to fully know Quite a few years ago, I was in my office and I had like a half-hour break in between appointments. And so I thought, well, I'm going to grab this Newsweek on my desk and just read an article that seemed intriguing to me. So I started to read it and the next thing I knew, the receptionist was buzzing me and telling me that my appointment was there. And apparently what had happened is I had fallen asleep while I was reading the Newsweek. So I must have been reading, sitting at my desk, and just kind of put my head down on the desk and fell asleep. So when she buzzed me and said, your appointment's here, I was a little startled. I'm like, oh my gosh, I I fell asleep. And I don't want anyone to know that I was sleeping. I don't want to look like I was sleeping. So the men's room was really close to my office, so I just, you know, looked in the hallway and then ran into the men's room and thought, I'm going to just splash a little cold water on my face um, to you know, get myself looking halfway presentable here and then so it wasn't looking like I was sleeping. So I walk in the bathroom, I walk up to the sink and I look in the mirror and the whole right side of my face was all full of ink. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, am I ever glad that I didn't go out there looking like this? And apparently what had happened is when I had fa- fallen asleep and put my face, my head down on the Newsweek, I started to drool. <laughs> and got all the ink from the page went on my face. I'm serious, the whole side of my face was all full of ink. And I'm like kind of panicking, so I'm grabbing these paper towels, and I'm putting soap on it, and I'm scrubbing it, and taking some more, and getting it all off. Took me about five minutes, and I put some more cold water on my face, and okay, so I go out, welcome, I think it was a marriage counseling thing, so I greeted them, came in, said, so how can I help you? Tell me your story, tell me why you came in to see me. A Couple minutes into it, the guy says, "Uh, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. He said, why is your face so red? And I said, oh, is my face red? (laughs) And then it was, I had this conviction of the Spirit said, you just lied to that man. You just told him you don't know why your face looks so red. You know why your face looks so red. So I'm like, okay, let me tell you what happened. But isn't that true that so often we want to cover, you know? Did you ever... Uh, get a call in the middle of the day while you're taking a nap and you answer and someone says oh I'm sorry did I wake you up and you go oh no 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 (laughs) yes I was sleeping (laughs) you know but why is it that our natural response is to cover to not want anyone to know I had fallen asleep or and if we do that with those kind of things how much more do we do with deep personal things in our hearts inside of us that we don't want anyone else to know I mean, I occasionally still get a zit on my face. And what do I do? I cover it. I've actually used some of my wife's, I don't even know what it is, makeup, to cover it, to make it, to hide it. But again, if we do that with external things, how much more do we do that with our own heart? In Luke chapter 7, we're told this amazing story about Jesus spending time at a dinner banquet with a Pharisee and some of his friends. And while they're gathering together, this woman shows up, just shows up unannounced and uninvited. And in verse 37, it says, and behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. She was a known sinner. Everyone knew, probably was a prostitute. Known sinners have nothing to hide because everybody knows. Unknown sinners have a lot to hide because they're busy covering up so nobody finds out. But she was known. So she came in unannounced, uninvited, and just stood there. Look at verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She kept wiping them with the hair of her head, kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. She was a broken woman. She was a known sinner. And that whole picture of this broken woman that was aware of her undoneness, just broken at Jesus' feet, weeping, and then kind of apologizing, trying to wipe the tears, I believe those tears were a form of worship from that woman because she was so aware of her brokenness and her need for Him. And she didn't let the shame and the stares and the whispering stop her because she was desperate. And she, know, she knew that only he could give her what she needed. Verse 39, And when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she's a sinner. Basically inferring, she's a sinner, but I'm not. And I wonder how often Christians kind of come off with that kind of an attitude. They're sinners, and I'm not. They're messed up, but I'm not. That was Simon's attitude. And basically saying about Jesus, if he knew how messed up she was, he wouldn't have anything to do with her. He would avoid and distance himself from her, but just the opposite. That's why Jesus came. He came for women like her, for men like me, messed up. And then Jesus said to Simon, let me tell you, what would you who do you think would, be, would love more, someone that was uh, forgiven 500 days' wages or 50 days' wages? And I did a little math, like if we said a day's wage in our day would be 20 bucks an hour, eight hours a day, that'd be $160 a day, and 500 days' wages would be about $80,000 compared to 50 denarii, which is one day's, one is one day's wage, would be 8000 So Jesus is, today would say something like, if, you, if this guy owed that man 80000 then and this guy owed him 8000 and he forgave both of them, which one would love him more? And Simon said, well, the one that was forgiven more, the 80000 over the 8000 He said, you rightly answered. And then... He said this amazing thing in verse 47. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, no, no questions there, her sins, which are many, there's a lot of them, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. What a powerful statement. Who did, what determines how much we love? What determines how much we love is how much we've been forgiven. What determines how much we've been forgiven? Awareness. Awareness. Because no one sins little. Everyone sins much. So how aware am I of just how sinful and fallen I really am? And if I'm aware of it, I know where to go. There's a Savior. That's why He came. I can be forgiven. I can be cleansed. So why am I hiding? Why am I pretending I'm better than I am when there's a solution? Those that are sick need a doctor. Those that aren't sick don't need a doctor. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. I came for people that can admit there's something wrong. That's why I came. We all sin much. We all need to be forgiven much. Listen, when Paul was nearing the end of his life and the end of his ministry, the second last letter he wrote 1 Timothy was the, first, the second last letter. 2 Timothy was the last letter he wrote. But in 1 first, uh, first Timothy 1.15, he said this. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. You can fully accept this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost of all. Some versions say chief. I am chief. I'm the chief. I'm the king of sinners. Present tense. Right now. I'm the chief of sinners. Not before I became a believer. Not yeah, in my past. Right now, Paul said, near the end of my ministry, the end of my life, right now, I am the chief of all, this, all sinners. And he's writing it to young Timothy, the guy he's discipling, the guy that he's mentoring. You would think he'd want to impress him with how holy he was, but instead he discloses and said, I am messed up. I'm really messed up. But... I'm glad I know where to go with what's messed up about me. That's why Jesus came. I'm messed up right now. How many of us talk about sin as if it's all past tense instead of right now? It all depends how you define sin. How do you define it? Is it just some external behavior? Or do we get into the thoughts and the intentions of our heart? That's what Hebrews 4 talks about. The Word of God discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our heart, our motives and I would say this, every failure to love is sin. Because in Matthew 22:37 37 through 40, remember Jesus said, uh, the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second's like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Um, these two commandments rest all the law, all the prophets, all the teachings of Scripture, can sum it all up in terms of loving God and loving others. So all sin is a violation of either loving God or loving others. Every sin you can think of somehow either violates your relationship with God or violates what it means to love someone else. If we define sin that way, how, how often do we sin? I sin a lot. When I look at it that way, I sin a lot. Not because I want to, but if I'm honest, I'm pretty screwed up. I was at my desk a couple years ago, and the receptionist buzzed me. I spent a lot of time at my desk, apparently. Um, She buzzed me and said, "Uh, Pastor so-and-so is on the phone. He's a friend of mine, a pastor from a different church in the Appleton area at the time. And I said, oh, tell him that I'm busy, and I'll call him back, get his number. And so she says, okay, and she hangs up. And I felt that little prodding of the spirit. you ever have this little tap on your shoulder? the Spirit of God kind of goes, and I felt the Spirit of God say to me, why did you tell her to tell him that you're busy? I said, because I am. He said, what are you busy with? I'm kind of like, a lot of things. Like what? Well, I don't know. I start going through things on my mind, and I felt the Spirit of God say, you could have taken his call, so why didn't you? I don't know. I guess I didn't want him to think that I just sit around and can just take a call from anybody anytime. (laughs) What do you think? I'm not I'm not doing anything? I'm busy. And then I kind of examined my own thinking that busy people are important people. So I want him to think I'm busy because I want him to think that I'm important and that I'm not just available anytime. Like wow, I was just convicted. So I called him back and I said, Hey Dave, this is Bill. Yeah. So I saw you just called. Yeah, thanks for calling me back. I said, I just have to tell you what just happened. And so I told him the whole thing, and he go and he says, Man, you are wicked. <laughs> and I said, I know I'm wicked. That's what I'm telling you for. But it's that it's that willingness to take an inward look of what's really going on in here and saying, I failed to love my pastor friend at that moment because I was more concerned about impressing him and making him think I was busy so that he thought I was important than I was about just taking his call and talking to him at the moment one of the ways that I have sinned against my wife <clears throat> is when there would be a conflict in our relationship or there would be we disagreeing on something I'd often shift into this spiritual mode and sometimes I'd actually like start humming a Christian song or a worship song. And, and kind of the attitude was like, I'm spiritual and, you know, you're not. And occasionally I would just bring up a scripture and I'd bring up a reference. I'd be like, well, you know, you should really pay attention to Colossians 3:16 and 17. Kind of like whip out a scripture at her. And she, now my wife knows the Bible pretty well, but she doesn't know where things are at, you know, like can't quote where it's at. So she'd often say, well, what does it say? And I'd often say to her, look it up. So this one day we're, I think we're having this little disagreement and I had kind of thrown out one of those verses, like quoted a verse, and she said, well, what does it say? And I said, look it up. And she says, well, Psalm 92.6 to you. And I'm thinking, she doesn't know where references are. And I found out later, she thought, I know there's at least 92 psalms, and if I pick six, there's probably six verses. So she just threw it out there. So she said, Psalm 92.6. So I said, well, what does it say? She said, look it up. So I'm like, okay. So she was standing right there. And I took my Bible, turned to Psalm 92.6. And it says, a senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this. And I'm like, and she says to me, what does it say? <laughs> I said, I'm not telling you. Look it up. She goes, no, what does it say? So I read it to her, and she starts laughing. I start laughing. And then she says, surely the Lord has spoken. <laughs> And I tell that story because that's just one example of how I'm not loving my wife when I shift into this spiritual, quoting scripture, self-righteous attitude. I'm not loving my wife when I do that. So what do you do? And if we really measure sin in terms of a failure to love God or trust him or love others, then it kind of opens the playing field, doesn't it? And then I think another question is, where do I turn? Let me read a quote from Larry Crabb. He wrote a book many years ago called Real Church, but he says it so well I, I don't think I could say it any better. He said, The more you desire spiritual formation, growing into Christlikeness, the more you'll come to value spiritual community. And as you realize that becoming a loving man or woman requires honest feedback and discerning input, and unrelenting support from others with the same goal, then you'll clearly realize how badly you don't want to settle for shallow relationships. You'll want to join others in the journey towards spiritual formation. You'll long to be with other like-minded people in spiritual community. And then Larry asks the question, what is church anyway? A building? Programs? Or is church a ragtag assortment of folks who want to hear the beautiful story that God's whispering and who want to love like Jesus so they can join the story and advance its plot? Are they people like me who want to hang out with others who don't love all that well, but who in their brokenness admit it and long the change? Who are willing and eventually eager to get involved in a messed up world with messed up people? Even though it would be more comfortable to avoid any involvement? because they believe that every moment of loving well makes the world a little less awful, and even a little better, a little more of what God had in mind. The church I want to be a part of, a real church, will teach spiritual theology that stirs a hunger for spiritual formation, that surfaces the need for spiritual community, and then marshals its resources for spiritual mission. Folks, the highest calling on our lives is love. It's to allow ourselves to be loved by a God who's crazy, wild, passionate in love with us and to open ourselves up to be loved experientially and to grow in being loved by him. And then to reciprocate that love and loving him back. We love him because he first loved us, First John 4 says. And then as we're loved by God, to start to learn how to love each other the way we've been loved by him. And then to measure sin in terms of a failure to love. And when we see that we've failed, we see that we haven't loved, and we call it sin, then ask ourselves the question which tree will we turn to? You know, the passage in John 18 talked about Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial. There's a difference between denial and betrayal, but they both turned their backs on Jesus and did their own thing. That's sin. But the difference between Judas and Peter is that Judas went to a tree, which I'll call the tree of self-contempt, where he regretted and was remorseful about what he did. He threw the silver down. He regretted what he did. But instead of going back to Jesus, he ran to the tree of self-contempt. He went and hung himself. He took his life. And some of us don't actually take our lives, but we go to the tree of self-contempt and we beat ourselves with shame and self-hatred and call ourselves names and say you're disgusting and you're despicable, and, and we go to that tree. But Peter failed miserably. He denied Jesus three times, but he went to the Calvary tree instead of the self-contempt tree, and he got forgiven. He went back to Jesus and got forgiven, and Jesus redeemed all that mess, and then he became an incredible pillar in the early church and spokesman for the gospel. So as we become more aware of our failure to love, Which tree are you going to go to? The self-contempt tree or the Calvary tree? We're going to partake in communion this morning. And my encouragement to you is to reflect on the call to love, the way we fail, and then to go to the Calvary tree and say, Jesus, would you forgive me? But don't just forgive me. Change me. Change me so that I am a little bit more like Jesus at the end of today by the work of your Spirit that I will love more like Jesus loves. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the hope of your truth. Thank you that you don't condemn. You do convict, but it's because you have so much hope for what we can become. And as we become more aware of the calling on our lives to love and the ways we don't do that and fail. Help us run to you like Peter did. When he saw you, when he was in the boat, he just he jumped in the water and swam the shore. He couldn't get to you fast enough. Help us be like that even after we fail and get forgiven and then changed by your, by your power, by your spirit. And Lord, as we go to the communion table this morning, Help us reflect on the forgiveness that's available because of the cross, because of your death, burial, and resurrection, and that alone. And then continue to make us new. And continue to teach us how to love others the way you love us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.